Welcome back to Cast Me to Hell with me, Seb. And you'll notice a silence there because this week it is just me, Seb. Robbie is not here. He has returned to the underworld and is staying in hell for a little while. No, not quite. He is uh, not here because we are trying to, I don't know, how do you say it, diversify our portfolio. (laughs) We are uh, trying out some solo features, um, and there's a reason for that. It's one, people might get to know us individually a little bit more, but also because, uh, because I'm due to have a child anytime soon, anytime in the next month, I'm going to have my first child. So we're considering uh, backup things for when we can't quite be available together or if there's any times we just can't be together. So we wanted to see how people respond if we do some occasional solo episodes. Um, But we'll also try and mix these in with guests episodes and things like that. But we don't plan on doing these very often, but occasionally a little scattering of these episodes brought in. Now, this week's episode, I am introducing a new feature, and that is Copycat Horror Films. Now, Copycat Horror Films is a feature for me and Robbie going forward so that we can start looking at the different kinds of horror films that have obviously been directly copied, inspired, or taken from previous horror films. Now, each time we will focus on a different kind of horror film and see where did the different kind of copycat films come from and what kind of areas do we find in the films that we think are copycat in nature. Now, today's episode is going to be a shorter one, And it's going to be focusing on Halloween. So 1978's Halloween, John Carpenter's redefining slasher. It literally opened the doors for so many different horror films. And there are so many different eras. And it opened up so many doors for John Carpenter himself to be able to make the classic horrors that we all know and love, like The Thing, and vampires, if you know that more obscure one, but still, he's made some fantastic horrors in the last, well, decades. Now, one copycat that comes to mind that I'm not really going to go into much is Friday the 13th. Now, obviously, following the success of Halloween, slashes were everywhere, and Sean Cunningham and his, and his group and production partners noticed a big gap in the market for more of these kind of films, and they were very quick to hit on it. Now, obviously, there are stories that they had ideas before, but there are also a lot of stories that say that they basically saw the success and they tried really quickly to throw together something. And the fact that it's Friday the 13th, it kind of uses a common date, not quite a holiday, but a common date in the year to kind of draw in in that, and that kind of similar copycat nature that we have from Halloween being a date we also have many things in the film like points of view that are quite obvious to be quite similar to halloween um but friday the 13th i'm not here to talk about because it's been covered a lot we've covered it ourselves in the past uh to do a little plug we have covered friday the 13th a long time ago for its anniversary and we've also covered halloween ends recently we've done a halloween retrospective So we've done quite a range within those two film genres. The reason that I've chosen Halloween to be our first copycat is because for a lot of horrors, it kind of kick-started that. It kick-started slasher films, it kick-started some home invasion films, and it started to make horror a little bit more accessible. And there's a clear link between how it redefined horror. Now today... The, I'm going to talk through a few different horror films that I believe are copycat of Halloween. Now, copycat does not mean that it completely just rips off every single part of it. Some of these films are great in their own right. Some of these films have completely different maybe ideas and plots, but there's a lot of similarities that pop up throughout the films. Now, my first film that I'm going to talk about today is Slumber Party Massacre from 1982, directed by Amy Holden Jones and written by Rita Mae Brown. Um, This is a straightforward 
slasher. It is a quite, you might say, schlocky, quite exploitative horror, but it is a fun little slasher. And another interesting part of this one is it is directed by a woman, written by woman, and most of its sequels were also written by women. So there is quite an interesting diversion at times of that kind of male gaze that you would expect to see in this kind of horror. But then there's also a load of tits and ass in this film <laughs> that I've seen in most horrors. So I don't quite know. There, there definitely is some things that bend the genre and there's definitely some clear female kind of feminist ideas. Um, the writer herself is known to be, Rita Mae Brown is known to be quite a feminist writer. So it is quite interesting that we get such a, a, a balance of like women being free with their bodies, which of course can absolutely be true, but I wouldn't quite say some of the shots in this film are very feminist in their approach to that area. Um, so part of that kind of area of the film, um, we do get a little bit, bit more with the director that kind of gives us more of an idea of how why she's showing them in that way but it's definitely a surprise with this film to see that you see such an amount of like boobs on display or women in slinky outfits when you see this you kind of expected maybe more of a diversion than you might see now um this one is between halloween uh, and Friday the 13th for inspiration, because you can see a little part in there. Now, to focus specifically on Halloween, so the camera angles that we that show the, as I'm going to call him, Driller Killer. Now, I know that that's a different horror film, but he is a Driller Killer. Um, to go into a basic summary of what the plot is like in this film, it is basically straight into it. It is like a high school um, that they are organizing a slumber party and then we have a deranged killer with a drill with his as his weapon of choice out there murdering people left and right uh, there's a lot of death there's a lot of gore in this film so as i said that's kind of what makes it fun um, but in terms of plot it's certainly not reinventing anything it, it's very straightforward there's not too much that diverts away from it but there's a lot of things on show that kind of show off it being a little bit Halloween in its perspective. And then it's obviously used that success. So as I mentioned, the camera angles we see here are very Halloween. We have kind of, when we see the killer, we kind of see over the shoulder kind of shots. We kind of see him hiding in different locations around the area. And we have, lot, we have a few point of view shots as well, uh, mainly for seeing the killer. So again, it's, not just Halloween that we obviously have this. I mean, the first use of that is probably back to Peeping Tom in the 1960s was the first kind of real use of this point of view kind of shot. And then obviously Psycho used this as well. So it's not just a Halloween thing, but the timing links with the fact that they really are trying to push for that Halloween crowd. So uh, we have the girls at a slumber party and we have some Peeping Tom kind of guys. Now, the film doesn't go straight to this point, but I'm just picking out the points where I notice Halloween style in each of these areas. Now, um, so we have our main girls to go to the cast. So um, our main cast is Michelle Michaels as Trish. Uh, she's kind of the leader, the kind of popular girl. And we have Valerie Bates, who is kind of the one that is kind of a little bit more. She's a little bit more of the goodie. So she's a little bit more of the classic final girl that you would expect. Now, Valerie is not part of their slumber party because she's not quite invited to the slumber party. And she also takes on the role of babysitter for her sister in the film, uh, Courtney. Now, We've got that kind of part. So the, the slumber party element at the house is a little bit where it varies away. And it's a little bit, like I said, more exploitative, a little bit more kind of in your face, kind of like slasher, kind of stocky horror. And then the other side of it is value at the house, which all feels a little bit more tame and a little bit more slow build, which feels very like Laurie in the original Halloween. So. These are our main kind of final girls that we have here. We have Valerie, Courtney, and we have uh, Trish. Now, when we see uh, 
at the house. It's Trish and uh, two of her other friends um, are at their slumber party. They also have a range of guys that kind of pop in, like I said, the peeping Tom kind of guys, which you've got in classic 80s horror of this kind. Um, and we kind of get a couple. And across the street, as I said, is where the main, our main kind of girls are. We've got... Our, we've got uh, so in our uh, main uh, final girl with this, her sister, we get major Halloween babysitter vibes. We get them sat watching horror films. We have dimly lit phone conversations, even similar clothing Valerie wears to our main girl, Laurie. Uh, being seen as the kind of goody girl, it kind of adds on to that, that she's the one that would be home and wouldn't be taking part quite in the kind of things that they talk about or they get up to, even though at the beginning we do have a clear shower shot of basically all of them, um, all of them in kind of that kind of like shower scene. And we get a lot of bodily parts shown off, um, which again, I'm not saying is a bad thing, but you know, it's to each person's taste as to how much they kind of like that in horror films. Some of them you're expecting it, but it shows you the kind of horror film it is. But with all of this setup, um, a lot of things might make you wonder, you know, where's that kind of thing. But I mean, this is a much more bloody affair than Halloween. So to talk about a little bit of the differences. So there's some great kills uh, that really make this quite a fun kind of ride, including our first death. And our first death in the film is a really interesting one um especially to me anyway it has a repair woman and we kind of have the some boys from the high school who are kind of chatting her up and as the boys walk away she gets dragged inside of the van by these hands uh and you kind of see her in the back kind of moving around and you can see her tapping on the glass like trying to get away trying to signal to the boys but they're not noticing and it's really interesting to me because it felt like a real, like as if this, so this film may have inspired a death because it is so spot on similar to Randy Meek's death in Scream 2. As in, it's so similar. It's it's very effective. And for me, um, that is like Randy Meek's in Scream 2, as I've mentioned before, if you listen to our podcast a lot, like that's one of the ones that affected me the most because I love that character so much. So it's a really hard death for me to watch and has such an impact for me personally. But in this film, it is such a cool kind of early effective death. And we get the idea of the, the drill that goes inside. And it, it's it's just, it is a quite a shocking sudden like, oh, wow, we're getting straight into this, aren't we? We're, we're barely into the film when we get these first this first death. And it is out of nowhere. It's a really cool kind of shock kind of death. Um, but again, that death itself is not greatly... Halloween, maybe later sequels, but not really so much of the first one. Um, however, the idea of an obsessed psycho following the girls relates to Michael. They even give the killer this kind of some form of like, I don't know if they're going for a disability or they're just trying to make him not very bright or like what exactly they're going for. Not that Michael had a disability of like any kind, but that kind of mainly silent shape and not your ordinary kind of man um, is kind of what they play on to him. Um, within the stalker theme, we get throughout the film of them him becoming obsessed with these girls and following them, and they're kind of being a death trail left behind it. As I said, a much more bloody and graphic death, death trail than the original Halloween kind of gave off, obviously being a mainly bloodless affair. Um, within the stalker theme, we comes the loss of innocence. And I think that this is a major theme that we'd see between both films. Um, we have the sister, Courtney, and she only wants to be beyond her age. She wants, she, she wants to be at that quite, and what we kind of feel is like quite a sexualized kind of slumber party with the other girls older than her. She herself seeks out this kind of sexualization. Um, our main protagonist, Valerie, is not averse to sexualization um, as her sister kind of um, seeks out. There's a scene with her sister where she goes into her room and sneaks off and she has a, she gets a play uh, playgirl magazine from out underneath. And we know that that's from actually from Valerie's room. Um, but however, 
she isn't seeking Valerie, our kind of main, main girl, is kind of not seeking our kind of Laurie Strode kind of here, is not seeking out that thing. So she's she's not quite seen as much of, say, like the prudish kind of character that we get, the kind of buttoned up kind of character we would get with Laurie. But they're definitely trying to push her that, that, that she's still good. She's not, you know, she's not this kind of sexualized character and she is still quite an innocent character. Um, and with this, we also get the idea of the stalker and it being a drill and part of that kind of sexualization, but that kind of loss of innocence is that kind of, he uses this kind of drill, but it's such a big giant drill. I even questioned to myself throughout the film going, wait a second, like, did they have, uh, did they have cordless drills back then? But yeah, I don't know why I was reading into this kind of film so much in my head. But yeah, it's kind of like this big phallic tool that even the killer implying in the film that they're being drilled, including an on the uh, kind of a scene kind of where we kind of get this kind of on the nose kind of um, that he's kind of saying to them, like, you want this, you really want this kind of thing. And it even leads to later in the film when we get an on the nose kind of machete, which again, machetes just seem to pop up everywhere in the eighties. I don't know. I don't know if this is a common thing in America. Maybe someone can tell me, do you all have machetes? Because a lot of the films I'll be talking about today seem to just have machetes out of nowhere. Again, Friday the 13th. Absolutely. But it's also kind of just an interesting, do you all have them? <laughs> Are they just hanging around your house? Um, but the we have an, this kind of real on-the-nose machete where they, she uses the machete and she cuts off the drill head as he's kind of got it in this kind of uh, pelvic kind of area, this kind of moving it down towards him, kind of thrusting. And then he gets this kind of emasculating response from the killer like he's he's suddenly been dethroned, he's been defeated. Um, so it's really interesting, but linking into that kind of, the idea of this stalker or this kind of maybe even rapist kind of feeling that we're getting from this guy, we also get when the girls are forced to fight and they have to kill him, um, basically um, they're all in the same situation as Laurie in Halloween. We have this Loss of innocence, the idea that they in the slumber party and Laurie in Halloween have changed forever by the trauma this man has brought. Almost taking a kind of virginity from them or the link to even stalking or the rape kind of idea that he's taken all of this from them. He's taken that innocent in the moment that they have to kill someone. And you can see in the film that they, they really don't want to have to do this. They don't want to stab someone. They don't want to hurt someone, um, but they're kind of forced to it. Um, and however, however, I think that these are much more subtle themes in Halloween. Um, I think you do get a little bit of that with, you know, Michael and the, the knife and the fact that he's constantly like hunting it down. And there's the talk of like different, like who fancies you and that guy fancies you and who's that standing behind. It? And we have that stalker aspect absolutely in Halloween. And we also have a little bit of that kind of symbolism, that little way that you could sexualize this if you weren't thinking about it without thinking about Halloween too. And the fact that they're a sister kind of thing. You never quite know in any of the films exactly why, well, the good ones anyway, why Michael is doing this. And you have this kind of obsession. We never completely get in this film, Slumber Party, we kind of just get the idea that I love you and that he's in love with you. And that's why he's kind of going after them. But as I said before, that's kind of linked to the fact that he doesn't quite seem like he's all there in the head. Um, and in Halloween, these themes are quite subtle. Whereas in Slumber Party Massacre, um, they're much less subtle. Those kind of ideas that we get about like all of these areas and the drill itself is just like, it, it leads to some amazing kills. I'm not going to bring that down. There's, there's a whole range of different deaths in here and they all kind of get this effect from it. And, and you see that same kind of trauma from the deaths and you have that same moment at the end with all the girls in Slumber Party Massacre, the remaining ones with Trish and, and Valerie and Courtney, when they're just sat around and basically the end is just them basically almost in tears, almost so traumatized. And obviously we have that with Laurie right at the end of the original Halloween, where it's just like, what has just happened to me? My whole world has just changed. 
Um, and there are links, obviously, as I've already mentioned, to F13. Um, but they're over here. They're for another time. That's for me and me and Bobby to hit another time. Now, the next film that I'm going to talk about um, is another film from 1982. And that is Alone in the Dark, uh, directed by Dax Shoulder. And starring uh, Donald Pleasance and uh, Martin Landau and Jack Palance and Dwight Schultz. Um, and this is a film about a homicidal psychopath who escapes, sorry, psychopaths who escape during a blackout. Um, and it's quite funny because basically the way it's described online is they do some looting, they terrorize a hated psychiatrist, and then they visit a punk rock club, which is the way I've seen it on every time. So if you look up Alone in the Dark, and by the way, no, this is not the video game. This is not um, the terrible video game adaptation film either, um, but it is the forgotten horror thriller Um of Alone in the Dark. Now, but yeah, everywhere online seems to describe this film just those three main parts. They, the several, the four psychopaths escape during a blackout. They do some looting. They terrorize a hated psychiatrist and then they visit a punk rock club, which all sounds so freaking bizarre. Sadly, the film is not as bizarre as that gives up because that kind of sounds like a kind of fun, like what the fuck is going on kind of horror film. And I love those kind of horror films, but sadly it's not that kind of horror film. It's mainly straightforward. There are some crazy over the top performances from some quite classic actors to kind of give you a little bit of interest in that kind of the way that each uh, psychopath kind of has his own kind of thing, his own kind of trip as they refer to it. Now, this is mainly about the idea of in a sanatorium that we have a group of psychopaths and we have a new doctor that comes into uh, Dr. Dan Potter, played by Dwight Schultz, who comes in as a new doctor taking over with these patients. And as they have quite obviously, they are known as psychopaths or people or as it says in the film, uh, I believe, travelers or people on a journey. Um <laughs> to get better and we have donald pleasance again not as a psychopath though which was sad i, I thought that that's what he was going to be in this film i thought it'd be a nice twist to see him the other way around we do get a scene at the beginning where he gets to be like the murderer in quite a cool kind of uh let's say crotch chopping which is very um almost maybe think of terrifier <laughs> um but um it, you don't get to see it but it, you get it to see it chopped down and it's quite cool to get to see him in that role um although sadly for most of the rest of the film although he is dr leo Bate in this film he's only partially in it and he's not really used to that great effect most of the time um, but we have all of these at this um, sanatorium or psychiatric ward or whatever you want to refer to it as. And all of the doctors are trying to make them better. They're trying to help them. But everyone is pretty much terrified all the time of being on the ward. And when this new doctor comes in, they can't understand this as being a new doctor. They think that he must have, in their minds, they think he must have killed the other doctor in order for him to have taken over so that they start to set up in their mind that as soon as they can find a way out, they're going to go and try and kill Dr. Potter because they think that he killed their previous doctor. So it's an interesting kind of um, show into the psyche of what they're thinking about. Um, and, you know, we also have kind of lots of themes. We have one um, who's referred to as, Fatty, uh, Ronald Fatty Elster, and he is kind of a child murderer. Um, we have um, Martin Landau as Byron Preacher Sutcliffe, and he is a believes himself as a preacher, a murderer, and he refers to everything within the Ten Commandments and how to kill. Um, his is probably Martin Landau's is probably the most over the top kind of performance we get in this film. And uh, we've also got um, Jack Palance as Frank Hawks, who I think is actually, he's not actually in it too much, but he's the most subdued and he does bring a nice, actually kind of a nice kind of subtle performance here. Little moments, you, you kind of believe him the most as a psychopath, while also both having this kind of 
that he's not in a good place and he wants to be better. So it's a quite nice bit that we get towards the end of the film. But anyway, setting it all up um, to say why this is Halloween ripoff. This film has such a John Carpenter feel to it. Um, although it's not as well directed, I believe John Carpenter would have done a, better, a much better job. Um, the shots, the music, it all feels like a JC ripoff in general, including stealing Donald Pleasance. Um, it takes place in that sanatorium um, and it has the escape from a sanatorium. It has Donald Pleasant again. He's playing that doctor, as I've mentioned. Um, and yeah, I won't go too deep here, but the main links outside of the cast and the tone are the three insane, uh, well, four, but one of them kind of gets rid of early. So it's mainly the three main ones that I mentioned a second ago. As they slowly kind of move around town, and we have very kind of um, Halloween-esque shot where they're going around in the van in these kind of windy, kind of autumn-y kind of uh, town. And we can see the van kind of going through and you can see people moving down the streets. And it all felt very, very Halloween to me. Um we have the same obsession and stalker aspect, like I mentioned, about Dr. Potter. And um, Donald Pleasance does have a slight twist on it, I guess, because he's not actually the one really that wants to be hunting them down. Um, he's trying to, to believe the opposite of Halloween. Um, he's trying to believe that evil can do better, <laughs> um, that they can be better, and he's believing that they're not going to kill, even though by the time he kind of talks about this, They've already killed three people. Um, so not quite kind of going his way. And they are, the other people are trying to prove to him. So that's kind of a diversion of what he was. But it's still not really enough to not be like, mm, you've kind of just brought Donald Pleasance in because of how successful Halloween's just been. You want Donald Pleasance to be this kind of doctor character and you're just trying to subvert that kind of idea. Um, it also includes a babysitter subplot. So the again... It's right there. The babysitter, again, we've got that subplot related to the child murderer, Fatty, as I'm going to call him. Um, as, as Sorry, he is called Fatty in the film. I'm not just, I'm not just abusing someone. <laughs> he is called Fatty. Um, and um, the child murderer and a babysitter's murder. So um, there's definitely this feeling of deja vu here. We, we do get quite a cool kind of kill. We have the babysitter um kind of in a classic way like we have one we have fatty coming to the house with the daughter um dr potter's um daughter and you think something's bad's gonna happen there's even a scene when a babysitter comes over to actually look after her after he's been with her and you i wasn't sure if she was dead on the bed but they said she was just asleep i was like is she are you sure she's not dead but it turns out he didn't do anything which again didn't really match up with the character so i was a bit confused by that kind of part but the babysitter part of it now we have the classic kind of like Annie in the original. She's like, oh, you know, when can I get over to my boy and then boy to kind of have sex, basically. And then actually she ends up inviting him over and they have sex in the apartment, but they, well, they don't actually get that far because then they hear a noise in the room and the boyfriend goes to check in the closet and we have a whole kind of really cool kind of quick kind of death. I don't want to ruin the deaths here, um, but it is really effective. And we have a kind of bit which involves the bed where a knife's coming through it to give a bit of a tease in all different locations, getting closer and closer. And it's it's quite a nice kind of death. Um, so we, we have that babysitter murder part of it that kind of is in there as well. We even have a kind of a strangulation scene related to this kind of part, which all, again, feels very deja vu to me. Like I was a little bit like, oh, I've seen this before. but. To be fair, the film has its own structure and it's not a straight ripoff. It's certainly using some ideas and some of the goodwill of Donald Pleasance in Halloween to its advantage. Um, and the film is quite a slow burn horror-wise. It does have some good kills, um, some good effective kills, and it, it has some fun. Um, if mainly, say, things like I said about Martin Lango, the over-the-top performances. Um, but they are well-respected actors, and you can see what they're trying to do with this kind of film in a short amount of time that some of them are given, because it is mainly more focused on Dr. Potter and his family. The actors are kind of there for little parts of the roles to appear as a psychopath. So it doesn't always feel like full-on, like with the deaths. So they are more in the background kind of doing stuff around them. Um, the main excitement in the film, though, does come in the third act, 
Um, and it is quite a good third act um, when we have the killers surround the family home and we have someone in the house who's questionable about what, what are they trying to do here? Why are they here? We have Donald Pleasance return up at the house trying to plead with the killers and we have a fair a few kind of deaths in this scene. Um, and and it's, quite, it's quite interesting. And it's another notice fact of, of this film is that this film's quite known. So although I'm saying it's a ripoff, I'm also saying that it also inspired quite a lot of home invasion thrillers that came later that weren't quite as prominent before this film. Not that we hadn't had any. Um, we definitely had things with relating to families, not necessarily always home invasion, but definitely relating to families and groups and Hills Have Eyes and um, Last House on the Left, what to quote Wes Cravens. He had quite a few of those kind of films. So I'm not saying it's the beginning, but it, it had a little bit of a push and several films have said that they were inspired by this kind of lesser scene, kind of underrated hit. Um, so yeah, it's it's a solid film. It's, it's, it's good, it's enjoyable, if a little bit slow at times, but it does have a good range of death. But as I said, Again, those main things, the babysitter, the stalking, the kind of slow shots. This one is definitely, out of all the films I've said, is definitely shot the most like John Carpenter's film. Even the music sounds like it's a ripoff of some of the sounds that you'd expect. So there's definite kind of leeching off of the success of Halloween. Now, the last film that I'm going to talk about is called The Initiation. Um, again, this is another kind of underrated gem. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who have seen it, but from what I've heard, it was a film uh, that was basically in 1984. It was released around the same time as A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, even has some relation within dreams to A Nightmare on Elm Street in some ways, but um, it kind of had its thunder stolen by A Nightmare on Elm Street. So it didn't really get as wide a release as it should have, and it kind of made it more played back in the day in like film festivals and and kind of played in smaller kind of drive-throughs and double features that they used to do back in the day, which, by the way, sounds awesome. I love the idea of that. I wish sometimes that we didn't live in the big rainy country that we are in that I'm staring at right now as the rain is pouring down around me. And I kind of wish we had the kind of country where we could have more things like drive-throughs and there were more things like going out to horror double features would be freaking amazing. Um, I would love it. But The Initiation, Larry Stewart directed this. Um, and it's so it's an interesting premise. So it involves um, our main character is Kelly Fairchild, uh, played by uh, Daphne Zuniga. And we kind of have an opening that has her as a child and she goes into a house and she sees um, basically what we believe is her mother and father having sex. Um, then we see her by her father's bedside and she has a pair of scissors and she stabs him in the legs and she kind of keeps trying to attack him. Then we see another man kind of come in. We see like a mirror reflection thing going on where we see her looking in the mirror um, and then when another man comes into the room and a big kind of fight between the two men escalates, ends with the other man uh, being on fire and it burns and we see that kind of the burning and uh, then she, she wakes up and we have the girl that's in uh, college or university in the UK and she's basically, she's doing an initiation for a sorority house with a whole range of different uh, characters um, and part of that sorority house is that they have to do a prank. And because um, she is Kelly Fairchild and she's part of quite a, a big, um, her father's company is quite a rich company. So uh, she's asked to uh, buy Megan, the Francis Peterson plays her in this film. Megan is kind of the bitch, the one in control, the one who's basically taking all of the power that she can get and running with it. And uh, Kelly's mother, Francis, and her father, Dwight Fairchild. So they're kind of the owner of this big company. And as part of that prank, they want them to go into one of their bigger kind of like shopping center kind of things, to call it like that, or a big business uh, center. And they want them to break inside and they want them to steal the clothing of the uh, security guard. Now, that's the main part with the initiation part of it. But the major overall and the bit that makes this stand out apart 
from Halloween because right now it still might not be sounding that much like Halloween and it's not necessary. This is probably the one with the plot, I think, that skewers furthest away from Halloween um, but still has those major links. Now, uh, in the initiation, uh, we have um, dreams is a major part of it. Like I said before, that link of Nightmare on Elm Street, but this was around the same time. So it's not to that level. It's not going into our dreams so much. It's more about the analyzing our dreams and how that dream that we have at the beginning of the film keeps on reoccurring. It, it keeps coming back to her. She's had it her whole life. She keeps seeing the same dream. Um, she's been told that she's had amnesia since she, when she was nine and she's never been able to get any of the memories back before that. And that she was in care and she was in hospital for months and she was in a coma and she doesn't remember any of these things. And there's a feeling that there's a lie going on. Um, so it does certainly have its own ideas and um, how the dreams can affect and how that can follow us and and that kind of how that trauma can follow us again that there is a lot there but there's also a lot and again still that trauma part of it that also relinks to halloween um so one thing that i did want to point out before i get fully into it and and this is kind of a subverting away from how it ripped off and more to actually what it might have inspired it's the second film but it's again where i just couldn't help look at it and go I wonder, because it, it's so similar. So in that opening dream sequence, as I said about the girl with a pair of these big scissors, and she's in this kind of white kind of uh, white kind of nightgown, and um, the stabbing of, with the scissors and the stabbing towards her parents. And it just reminded me so much of Daniel Harris's Jamie in Halloween 4. Um, and that was made after this film, several, in fact, four years after this film it was made. Um, and I, I just almost wonder if the idea of that kind of dream, because we also had in that film the idea that somehow uh, Michael was kind of, or in the sequel as well, it kind of followed up, but you had this kind of running thing of somehow there was some kind of link between them, whether it's dreams or things like that. We even have little dream sequences and ideas that almost like she could see perspective, which I think is also in Halloween 5 as well. Um, but again, so that kind of link and then ending with like Jamie and her mother in Halloween 4, where she stabs her with, you know, the scissors and she's in this clown costume, obviously linking to the original film. But there was just something about that. I know that it, obviously that's inspired by the original Halloween film and when he's when Michael stabs his sister. But there's just something here that just made me think, oh, I wonder this little girl who looks a lot like Daniel Harris as well. Um, I just wonder whether that was inspired in its own way. I couldn't find anything to say that it was. It's just in my head that that was quite a clear link. And that this childhood violence um, is very reflective of young Michael. Um, so, as I said, it ends with the man, uh, the man burning, but um, including the man who burns our killer who who survived but the, so the man is burnt and we do get to see him early on so we've got this child violence the idea that something happened when younger and that's led to a sanatorium um again it's not the child that goes to a sanatorium but we are told she was in care for several years and and that she's been looked after so we have that but we also have that the man who was burning is still alive and he lives in this facility um this horrible facility it's an awful sanatorium it, it's they're literally they are they are treated like absolute crap like shit. <laughs> they really are um nurse higgins by patty uh, hyder she's played and they are treated so horribly they're treated like shit um she she basically they're basically almost in two separate cage parts where they're separated and all she does is go in and it's shouting and screaming at them just for doing anything basically um and we get a very Marion Crane style scene um, as the lead nurse, um, as Nurse Higgins is surrounded. So in, it's, it's a very cool sequence. I really liked this part of the film. Um, and basically, they've all been let out um, by someone. We don't see, we don't quite see who. We assume it's the burnt man um, because the the coat, the shirt that he's wearing is blue when we see him and we do get to see his burnt face, which you do think is a little bit of giving away of the mystery kind of of who the killer is going to be. Um, and then we see the hand kind of release the doors and let all of them out um, so that when Nurse Higgins comes out of, out of work to go to her car, she suddenly, all she can hear on this dark night is 
voices and chanting. And then she sees that all of them have broken out and they start to surround her. And I, I really thought that they were all going to literally just tear into her. I thought this was going to be like a full on, like, this is what you get, bitch, for treating us like absolute shit. Um, but instead, um, she runs into a station wagon. And I mean, like, an almost exact same Halloween station wagon. And she goes inside. And no, we don't get a hand breaking the glass on the window or the screaming because she actually dies in the scene. Um, instead, um, we have a stab with a gardening fork. Now, I know I said certain kills I wouldn't, but just to emphasize that there is the slight difference, but at the end of the day, she's coming out of a sanatorium. They've escaped. She's getting into a station wagon and the killer's taken it. And I'm pretty sure there's a link later on in the film that shows that he actually took the wagon and I'm pre- there's not much, but I'm sure there's one scene when you see it kind of driving. So, you know, whoever the killer is, is that is the person who has killed her. We assume it's the guy who was in the garden, who she herself had berated earlier just for basically doing gardening and said he shouldn't be outside because it's inspiring them to stab things. I don't know, with the garden fork. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But she is definitely a total bitch <laughs> in this film. Like, there's no redeemable for her. And then she dies. Um, but in such a Marion Crane kind of way, not death, but, you know, the way she's attacked. Um, we have a lot of Halloween style point of view shots. Um, so at one point, there's um, the, the person we believe to be the father's death. And we follow the killer's point of view as he comes around the house. And we then go back into the house and we see the father and they hear a noise outside. And there's a pot that's been broken out the front. And he comes out in this very kind of, James Bond kind of style with his gun just pointed out at them, which is really bizarre. But then he calms down and he goes back inside and then nothing happens for a little while. And then we see someone walking through a kind of forest towards the side of a house and we see the father kind of come out. Um, and we kind of see as the killer gets closer and closer to the father, we do say see, see a death, not going to say how he dies, but again, it all happens from the point of view of the killer, which again is a little bit of Friday the 13th as well, obviously, because that one was more like follow the, the kills all the way to how they killed them kind of thing in a lot of the scenes. But it's still very Michael. And the bit when he's going around the house just feels so like the way it looks, the way we get some of the music kind of chime in. Very, very Halloween. Um, the killer is like um, kind of Michael. We only really see certain bits. We see him from the, the side and again, this is again saying who we believe is the killer because we never actually get a straightforward shot of the person killing anyone. So we're seeing like shots of this, this man from the side in the distance moving, like I said, the car, and we see people kind of getting dragged away. We kind of just see the hand and the weapons that they have in their hands. So it's all very Michael's point of view shot. Um, and as I said, we, we kind of have that mystery taken away, but the setup is actually quite interesting and I'm not going to spoil what kind of twist we get here, but it is a, again, the twist is actually, is still kind of a little wink to the kind of psyche of Michael Myers and things like that, but it's a nice twist. I didn't actually see it coming because there was enough diversions that took me away from it. So I, I really quite liked that part of it. So there is a really interesting part about how these dream areas and um, the film has much more on this kind of dream areas and, um, it's kind of uh, more to this film. The dream areas are kind of interesting that kind of hold it apart from a straight off uh, Halloween ripoff. Um, but it just, there's just enough of those that you're looking at it going. It's kind of like they'd taken that, like even when they're in the department store at the end and they're all locked in, we get like one by one, the deaths. And we have this kind of, again, those Halloween shots, not quite seeing or kind of in the distance. And they are more graphic and gory than, in Halloween. So again, we've got the gore factor up. But again, once you got that gore factor upped in certain films like say Friday the 13th, then Halloween kind of was kind of one that went more bloodless, but then a lot of the ones that followed copied but added more gore to it, which we love as horror fans. I absolutely, you know, we love those kind of things as I said with Slumber Party Massacre. Those are amazing really bloody kind of deaths and we love those kind of things. But there's also something that we can't say against the subtlety of the original Halloween and the fact that it just works as a suspenseful thriller. All, uh, this film, Initiation, has some really good kind of suspenseful scenes as well. And those dream elements are played up really nicely. And um, to have that kind of um, that that kind of twist and 
to have this kind of extra element that you're not quite expecting that kind of makes it a little bit different because it's not, I'm not saying that Halloween completely reinvents the wheel. It is just, you know, it is a slasher film at the end of the day. I'm not saying that the plot is extremely advanced or anything like that, but it is just that film for its subtlety and its simpleness works so effectively as a scary horror without needing to have all of this gore. Um, so unlike slumber party and uh, kind of you know alone in the dark had a little bit more to the story but unlike that there's a little bit more meat on the bones here and i know this is like i said kind of an underseen and underrated so i don't want to ruin it here so what i would say is go and find it go and find initiation if you haven't seen it um and yeah check out for what it is but you will notice those halloween links in there now, I'm not going to go into any more films, but there is a whole list of different films that could have been covered. I'm going to give a little bit of a quick overview of a couple of examples. If you want to go and check out some more Halloween kind of copycat thrillers, ripoffs, those kind of things. And also leave it open because me and Robbie might come back to this because there are so many more films that we could talk about and talk about how we saw the kind of John Carpenter inspiration within it or just the way that Michael Myers or the certain things that they've taken from it. There are more out there that are even more on the nose than these choices, but there are ones that I've seen a million times before, and I didn't want to go for the most straightforward ones. Some of those um, are, so the films that we could dive into, and um, I think some of them we will look at um, in the future, but Offerings is one of them. So Offerings um, is a film, it's, just a totally unsubtle in its amount. It's it's got music that's possibly the closest ripoff to Halloween, where they've almost just changed a note. Um, and it, and it really is just you know we've got that similar kind of whitish kind of masks, and it's just basically a complete ripoff of Halloween. Um, but some people might love it. Um, Blood Rage. Um, so Blood Rage from 1987. Um, it's got killers returning on a holiday. It's previously in a mental facility and being tracked by someone who knows how evil they are. So it ticks all of the boxes. It is set on Thanksgiving um, and look out for it. Cause in the future we are going to be in for Thanksgiving. We are going to be covering <laughs> blood rage. So I don't want to talk about it too much. Now we'll come back to that one. The prowler, a Tom Zavini special effects, master clash, clash, class. <laughs> it's not a clash. It's just a normal class of how good Tom Savini is. He's that class. Um, it that does stand on its own. However, like, and some people might for this one, but it definitely has more than a few copycat scenarios in there for Halloween. It's definitely got a few of those moments that are just, yeah, that's, that's very, very similar. But again, it's one of Tom Savini's best films in terms of special effects. So it's still absolutely worth it. Um, and finally, though there are definitely more out there, and due to the huge impact of like Halloween had on slashes, um, you know, there are plenty more that you could find. But um, another one is Na uh, Nightmare. Now, also known as Nightmare in a Damaged Brain, um, is one that I'm mentioning, but I haven't actually seen it yet. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because I know the basics of the story and I know it's about a boy taken to a sanatorium who then escapes and goes on a murder spree and so far, so Halloween. But there is much more to this cult classic that I, I've heard of, um, but I've avoided watching it as, and here's the little plug that comes in with this, to set up the future of, say, Copycat and some of the other ones we looked at. Uh, me, my, me and uh, Robbie are actually going to be covering this film. Now, this is the one that a lot of people say is very kind of close to Halloween, and I'm interested to see how that is in the future. So um, we're going to cover it in our next Video Nasties. Now, if you haven't seen our Video Nasties episode, go and check them out. Um, so far, we've covered uh, the original Evil Dead and Last House on the Left, and uh, we've also covered The Burning, which um, Robbie's covered with um, special guests. So um, we've already covered some of those in our Video Nasty episodes. But the reason I've saved Nightmare was because it has such an interesting story related to the Video na uh, Nasty regimes in Britain in the 70s and 80s. In relation, so if you're not aware and if you haven't listened to our Video Nasties, um, it's uh, when horror films were basically banned in the UK. They were made illegal 
Um, and they literally put in strict regimes as to which ones could be seen because they believed it had such a bad effect on um, children that were getting to see it and they thought it could lead to more crimes. And they had all of these kind of crazy ideas that horror was the problem for a lot of things that were going on, as well as other things in the UK at the time. So it's a really interesting area and we delve quite deep into it, especially, say, if you go back to our first one for The Evil Dead, we kind of talked quite a lot in depth about it and Last House on the Left, you know, all of those episodes for uh, Video Nasties that we've done has quite an interesting area that we've kind of delved into. So it's a nice kind of history kind of part as well. Um, and Nightmare, to kind of give a tease of what will be discussed, Nightmare um, is, or Nightmare in a Damaged Brain, as it's also known, is uh, the only film to actually get a prosecution, jailed, sentenced, actual jail time. So look out for that coming soon, because we'll be discussing that, the crazy part about the jail sentences. And there's even a part about Tom Savini and that there's a whole controversial part about Tom Savini. So look out for that. That should be coming to you um, following this episode. So look out for that. It might be in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye on Cast Me to Hell. So that's it for my solo episode. I hope that the sex appeal was not lost too much without Robbie. I know that it's probably been quite hard to get through without hearing that beautiful voice of his. And he will be back. We are not breaking up. We are together for life. So we're not going anywhere. Um, so keep an eye on us. Remember to check us out on our socials. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and we're also on TikTok. You can find us at CMTH Podcast. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the content that we've, or I've given today, uh, then please go and leave us a lovely review on where, whichever platform you are coming from. And also leave us a nice rating so that our podcast can grow. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>